0: These pieces that are by various producers, they're generally speaking, well, half-hour programs. But I try to sort of give the essence of them by, um, for example, the first piece called The Death of Ruth Tuck by Scott Carrier, is uh, I went through and I tried to extract various scenes and and use the same pacing that he used and and try to keep the scenes kind of complete. Could he add a number of scenes? If there's any overlap that is where you're hearing more than one voice or sounds going on at the same time, it's nothing I did. I, I didn't go in and tinker with the pieces. I just tried to take half hours generally and and extract enough that it'll give a 10-minute overall view Of what's going on so you have a sense of of the overall piece without getting into having to hear you know each half hour one of the pieces is rather long but again I've only extracted about eight or nine minutes from it and that's called breakdown and back and uh, it's uh, let's see it was uh, something Jay Ellison worked on and uh, one two three yeah I guess it's three three half hours or 90 minutes actually so uh, that, in that case, it was a little more difficult to extract and try to give, but once once i once I play the piece and give the introduction to them you 'll get a better sense of what the hell i 'm talking about here <laughs> so i 'm sort of killing time but but we can start uh, at, at this point the This first piece was done in the um, Sometime in the eighties, mid eighties, or something like that, by Scott Carrier. It's an. Ear- I think most of you probably or hopefully know who he is. That he's uh, quite a extraordinary, one of the best, I think, documentary producers. And he has his own particular style. This being an earlier work, it um, it's not. Really reflective, that reflective of, of what he's doing now. But it's it's fascinating for reasons that I'll you, you really have to hear it first, and then I'll explain why. Um, it's this thing of dealing with fact and fiction, and this is a good example to start off with because it seems like a very straight ahead documentary, and, and it deals with the the death of a woman called Ruth Tuck. And you'll hear it sort of takes her from the from the time that she dies right through the funeral and the autopsy and, and right to the grave digger. So it covers the whole in, in a half an half hour piece. So if if you feel that the volume is too loud or not loud enough, just you know raise your hand up or down, give give the signal, and uh, okay.
1: The upcoming documentary work is a new American radio classic, and it's as valid and moving today as it was 10 years ago when Scott Carrier and Ken Larson produced it. Here is The Death of Ruth Tuck.
2: The obituary reads, Ruth Tuck, 65, died yesterday of a lingering illness at University Hospital. Born September 15, 1921, in Charleston, South Carolina, to Austin and Unora Whitehurst married Wendell Tuck, April 7, 1947. They were later divorced. Ruth is survived by two daughters, Arlene Summers, Los Angeles, Margaret Simpson, Salt Lake City. She will be missed by all those who knew her.
3: My dear friends, we are gathered here today that we might fittingly recognize the end of a life upon this earth and offer our gratitude to God for the presence among us
4: of this beloved soul, Ruth Tuck.
1: Well, I don't want to sound prejudiced, but the the care and attention and even the love that a truly sick person receives in a Catholic hospital is a um, whole world apart from some of the others I know. So, well... And then, of course, when I saw her, oh, she was lying so still. And I thought at first she was just staring in some sort of a unhappy or a dull mood. But then when I got closer to her, I, I noticed that her eyes were glassy. And then I reached out to touch her. And she was quite cold, quite cold. When I got married, I was pregnant. And my mother, she was just so open about it and and supportive and she took me to the doctor. she talked to me a lot uh, she as as the pregnancy went along, she uh, came over and helped me do things when I got tired. Um, she just took really, really good care of me. If I had it to do over, I don't think I would have put her in the hospital if I could have helped it I would have done anything to have. 24-hour care at our house. But without somebody's help, some Arlene or my dad helping, there was just no way we could do that. And I hope, I hope that Arlene understands that and I hope my father understands that. About Christmas time, a couple of years ago, I came back. I, she, was, she was okay then. Um, and I, I really came back with the intention of um, making good with her. I, I wanted to straighten out some things. But it, it didn't work. We just, for some reason, we just could not communicate. I, 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 I don't know. We just... <sighs> She's very careful about... about... about things. She, uh... I'm not, I'm not sure how I can express
2: myself.
4: Tools of an autopsy are really very basic. Uh, scalpel, clamps, uh, forceps, and the real critical thing is really your own eyes and uh, your sense of touch. As the actual definition, the origin of the of the word was to see for oneself. So in, in this room, we have two uh, stainless steel tables that the, the body is placed on. And the standard for most autopsies is to make a Y-shaped incision. You, the incision is made with a scalpel starting at the, the point of each shoulder, going to the midpoint of the chest, and then down Uh, from the abdomen. The chest and abdominal cavities are then opened and the individual organs are then looked at. Ruth was very torn between uh, whether she really wanted a career or she wanted to uh, be a housewife. Uh, I think this uh, caused her quite a few problems and uh want to get into the reasons why we separated but that probably had something to do with that
3: he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake and yea though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil for thou art with me
1: my mother loved to dance with my father death, and she was she was a very I trim woman and, and, in and she person. was able to wear very tailored suits very well and, but it was neat, she had blue eyes and dark hair, and they, her eyes would sparkle and sparkle, or if she was angry, they could just, they could just sear you, you know, with their iciness. And, um, uh, she was always very tailored. She was terribly well-dressed.
3: We pray for those whom she leaves behind, for her family and her friends.
4: Uh, I'm just sort uh, of leading a uh, quiet life down here in Charleston, and, uh, Don't know whether I'm gonna be able to to get out to Salt Lake City though or not here the next day or two. I'd like to Got a right big board meeting coming up here tomorrow, and uh, it's been planned for about six months, and uh, I've got my girl here in the office trying to call some of the folks to see if we can rearrange it, but uh, just don't know yet sort of don't like to fly much either and that
5: makes the time sort of hard to, uh, to get out there quickly. We are going about uh, almost uh, 55 inches deep right now. Uh, the machine go in there, uh, and he take one bite out of that grave, and uh, I think sometimes, boy, that take me a long time to do that by hand. See beside Dick and we also cut the grass, water the grass, trimming around the headstones. You know, winter we have uh, snow to shovel, uh, path to clear, uh, area to clean for the people to stand. And uh, you see that you bury the people... And you say dead, and yet, don't we believe into a resurrection? And that's the same with the trees in the spring. Those trees are just like a resurrected being. They're coming out in bed, and later on, the, the leaves come out. And then, of course, the, the flowers come out. And where the birds? The wonderful birds you got in here and in the cemetery. Uh, weather, oh, I saw some bad weather here. I saw that I've been sending out here in, in snowstorms. And big thunderstorms, and lightning storms, and yet, if the sun come out and everything is beautiful and the smells are so good, it isn't wonderful the, the, the beer. It feels real good. I, do, I like it.
1: The death of Ruth Tuck was produced by Scott Carrier and Ken Larson. It was a commission of the 1986 New American radio series.
0: Um, <clears throat> again it seems like a rather straight ahead documentary and what the thing that caught my attention what i loved about this is that ruth tuck never existed there never was a ruth tuck and uh, and the documentary form creates a well a reality and how this happened by the way was not scott carrier it was a little bit of a flub because i who uh, was back and forth, emailed back and forth to Scott asking about, because I, th- I thought it was at first a deliberate scam, which I love the idea of, uh, but but that wasn't the case. He had gotten a grant to do something for the New American uh, uh, New American Radio, and he, uh, he had two weeks. He scheduled it, he had two weeks to do it, and no way could he do the interviews, all the interviews that he needed to do to um, uh, do a documentary on the subject of death. And so we got together with his friend, Ken Larson, who I believe is a director at something called New New American Shakespeare uh, Theater Players. And they came up with the idea of... Ken had a friend called Wendell Tuck, you actually heard him, and who his ex-wife was was Ruth Tuck, and they decided it would be interesting to kill her. And (laughs) (laughs) so everyone is everyone there is real that is the uh, the minister uh, with the eulogy is uh, i think scott 's uh, father in law the uh, the two two daughters are not they 're actually actresses um, the gravedigger 's real the the uh, person doing the autopsy so on and so forth Our real people gave them the subject of somebody dying and Uh, To Scott's mind, it was uh, Ruth became working on this piece. Ruth became very real to him. And he thinks of her as somebody, even though it's a fictional character, as real. Now, Scott, what happened was that he sent, when he sent the tape in, he put a note saying, this is a docudrama. He never meant to deceive anyone on this. And it never got mentioned on the air. And... uh, a couple weeks after it played, Joe Frank called, called him saying what a wonderful piece it was. And Joe totally believed it was real. And at that point, Scott knew something had gone wrong. That, that uh, And then, then he said this caused him all kinds of problems because then the word passed around at NPR that he had done this deliberately and you can't trust him. And so for years, this sort of stayed around, this stigma of... Um, his pulling a fast one, which which of course again, I rather love the idea of, <laughs> but it, it, um, and Scott's, Scott says there 's no reason even again, his intentions were um, you know up and up, uh, but he said there 's no reason why you can 't use fiction in um, in the documentary form it, to him it 's like saying that you can 't use a human voice as a musical instrument, so no singing. What's, what's fascinating about it to me is when you get fiction uh, in a documentary form, it, it suddenly gives it a reality that, that it didn't have when you know that you're listening to a work of fiction. Um, it, it, by the way, you can feel free to, except you're supposed to stand up there and talk, unfortunately, but feel free to stand up there if, if anyone has any comments before we move on to the next piece. So, uh, at any point, you know. Um, was there anyone want to say anything for? Her? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's terrible, but I, I know. I, I hate to. You know. Okay. I was just wondering, I didn't listen to it closely enough. His fictional characters, like the daughters who were actors, were they on the telephone and all the real characters were in location? That's right. Yeah. 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 So the only two, the only two were, and again, nothing was scripted except that deciding what questions to ask. Everyone has experienced death in one way or another, usually anyway. So it was easy for someone to speak from their heart, and and I think a lot of these people were, and uh, particularly I like Wendell talking about his ex. (laughs) And uh, um, so, so again, it was a situation of their talking about. Real experiences, and that's why to Scott, She sort of became a, a real person to him, but again, somebody who caused problems <laughs> from her fictional grave for him <laughs> years later, or four years, for several years anyway.
6: Oh, do you know why they didn't announce it? Was uh, he doesn't was it
0: he? Or was there
6: some reticence on the part of the programming people to admit that this was actually made
0: <clears throat> up. Is there a reason? he he, do, he doesn't know it it's sort of um i think he may have had a a problem with a producer after the fact he do, he he doesn't know why it was never mentioned. the note was perhaps not seen uh, on it but and uh and in fact he he said that he doesn't actually know for sure that it wasn't announced that but hearing this, this, it doesn't seem like there is an announcement, at least I didn't hear anything in the beginning, so, and this was apparently, they're replaying, because they mentioned in the in the very beginning of, of the piece that it, it, it had er, aired previously, and again, they didn't mention that it's a docudrama, so, so somehow or another, it slipped through the cracks that perhaps whoever was handling the tape, I I don't think anything was intentional, that, that otherwise that would have come to light, but uh, it's it, Deadlines, who knows? You know? They
6: were afraid that the listeners wouldn't take it seriously. If
0: they it. I don't know. I don't know. I probably should have uh, contacted the... Um, that's a good question. It didn't occur to me. Contacted the producer of the series to find out. Would have been interesting to get her side of it, actually. <laughs> um, okay. Oh, this is, this is by Marjorie Van Haltren, and Marjorie is now... She's a producer. She, she did this piece with Jay Ellison and, uh, uh, well, there are other people involved, too. Marjorie, it's it's a, this is a long piece of which I've extracted 10 minutes overall. And it, this is definitely a docudrama. Uh, but though a number of the people are real, uh, real in the sense of she's, she's recreating uh, a situation of a woman who works in media and, uh, um, who takes her through her mental breakdown and finally uh, her coming back again. And so all of this happens over, as I said, three half hours. What's interesting about it is that I had heard the piece, oh, I think it was done um, in the early 80s, something like that, and a year or two later I was at a conference and uh, in New York and Marjorie and I were walking down the sidewalk and I said to her, I said, wow, that, that was so real. I said, you, you, you obviously knew this person very well who had this breakdown. And Marjorie stopped and looked at me, and she said, you didn't know? And I said, what? And then, of course, it occurred to me that it, it was her, she was describing her own mental breakdown, <laughs> and, which, was, <laughs> which was a whole process for her because not only was she back then embarrassed because of her family of having a mental breakdown, this... Um, and just the way her parents couldn't accept the situation, uh, then then she was able to. I think it was the Satellite Program Development Fund, which was through uh, administered through NPR and CPB funded it and produced a, it. It uh, funded a lot of independent works, short, shorter works, generally speaking. Uh, so she she got a grant she submitted this and so it was only a year or so later that she then had to write the piece and uh, so i asked her about it and it was obviously it was rather difficult cuz she sort of had to relive this which she considered at the time she doesn't now but considered at the time a rather embarrassing situation of not being able to cope with reality and sort of unraveling at the seams she, so a lot of the people are real. That is, you'll hear her, that she went and interviewed later her boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend. Um, the person who plays Marjorie uh, is, is an actress, someone else. Uh, her mother, I don't know if you'll hear her, mother but her mother's in there. Her father, she, she had to use someone else. So some of the people have been replaced, and some are real, most of them are real friends that actually, and are speaking about this person, uh, but they're really speaking about Marjorie and Marjorie. Uh, and then we can talk about it a little more later, but you get you. The, the, um, again, I extracted what I could to try to give an overall feel of it, the, but it's uh, overall a rather long piece. So.
7: She'd get in a bus, and she wasn't quite sure where she was going. She'd get on the bus crying. And there was one, there was one time she told me that she got in the bus and she was so hysterical and really not really knowing where she was going. And she rode the bus for about an hour until the bus driver finally said to her, uh, lady, where do you want to get off? Hey,
8: lady, where do you want to get off? I don't know. Well, are you lost or something? I'm fine. I'm okay. You don't look fine at all. Riding and riding with mad
7: stamina. Huh? I'm fine. And she finally got it out to the bus driver that she lived at a particular address, and he personally drove the bus to that address and let her off and told her that she better uh, get into her apartment and get home. I'm fine.
0: This is Breakdown and Back, a true story for radio. In this three-part
6: series, we'll follow the experience of a mental breakdown as it was for one woman.
2: It is estimated that every year one out of every five adult Americans suffers from some kind of mental illness. Every case is different.
9: This is how it was for Annie. It never occurred to me that Annie was going to have a nervous breakdown until, until just before she had one. Um, and I mean just before, I mean moments before. <laughs> uh, I really had no idea.
2: You know, I guess when you're with someone all the time, and you really when they start changing little by little, which I think... But that that's really mo- what must have happened. I, I really didn't, didn't see the thing coming on. At this particular time, she had two jobs that were impossible situations. They were n- you couldn't win. My life so is Annie a mountain.
7: Wake up in the morning and go to one I looked at situation. this monumental task, knowing that how in the world could one person, by Christmas, have everything done with the script? I remember telling her that time, Annie, you've got to get help, and somebody else should be working on it with you. Oh, I can't. And she was afraid... She said to ask somebody. Oh. At the same time, she was um, going with Bill and. Take me in your arms. That seemed to be disintegrating. She got more frantic and more frantic because she felt that he was going to leave. Hold me. And she felt the relationship wasn't good, but yet she needed that because that was her last ability.
8: Help me unravel it all. We can stretch it end to end.
7: Her ad agency job was slipping away from her, the film was slipping away from her, and then her boyfriend was slipping away. And at the same time, she wasn't getting any kind of response from him, nor support. And he would end up, uh, in a sense, telling her that she just had to snap out of it.
2: I guess, I being from the South, I really have a tendency not to really believe that people... um, really have nervous breakdowns i mean it happens i'm sure but i mean i guess i'd been raised to believe that you just tough it out you know which of course is is ridiculous but that's just the way it is (laughs) that's the way i was raised
7: hi this is annie on tape I swear I'll get right back to you. Just leave your name and number in the approximate
8: time you called after the beep.
10: Hi, Annie. This is Katie, and I'm worried about you. Um, y- you haven't answered any of my calls, and I'm just wondering what's going on. Please give me a call, okay?
4: Thanks a lot. Bye.
10: I suspected that something was going wrong when she stopped answering my phone calls. I kept leaving messages, messages on the machine, and she didn't return them.
9: Annie s- stopped returning my phone calls, which was n- which was not like her at all.
10: Finally, I got Annie on the telephone. It was a Saturday morning and she was just talking a million miles an hour about her Blue Cross coverage, and that she was afraid she wasn't going to be covered, and that um, there was some mix-up at her job, and she'd done something horrible, and everything was a mess. And, uh, but the way she was talking was very frightening, because she was talking extremely fast, and very agitated, and just not making much sense, Just, just kept going on and on about, oh, but you don't understand my blue cross coverage. I'm not covered. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm... And um, I said, I'm coming right over.
8: See this piece of paper? See this on the desk? I have two figures written here. And one one figure is all the money I have, all the money I have in this world, and the other equals all my bills. Now, I'm afraid... I'm afraid to divide one into the other. I am afraid... I'm afraid that there will be, there will be nothing left and I can't let anything, there is nothing coming in.
10: So I went up to her apartment and well, when I got into the apartment I was absolutely shocked. First of all, she had lost about 30 pounds. She was very skinny. She was wearing her underwear. She wasn't dressed. Her apartment
8: was bare
10: but messy. So it was this really cold, kind of frightening place. I mean, no rug on the floor. She she, she wasn't dressed, but there were clothes all over the floor. And dishes and in the sink, and she was going around in a circle. She was like this skinny bird, and she was walking around the living room in a circle. She
8: won't be there any, right? She won't be... Listen. When I put my coat on, I discovered there are big holes here in the pockets, and I... <laughs> it's falling apart
10: and it was like you'd try to grab her arm and she'd run she away from you the and, and she was she had this uh, enormous appointment book it was the size of like a James Michener novel this was her appointment book and it was filled with stuff and she kept opening and closing and saying, "Ah, oh, you don't understand. I have to be at this place at three o'clock. There's a, you know, a, a recording or a shoot or something at three o'clock. You don't understand. You don't understand." And opening and closing and closing it, opening and closing it, and then, and she couldn't get dressed. I could see what she was trying to do, but she was spinning around. She just couldn't do it
8: thinking about those people who live on the
10: street. Anyway, so I was a little bit embarrassed with this with this cab driver because here I was in the back seat with, with Annie, who was talking a million miles an hour and trying to run out of the cab and opening and closing her appointment book and talking about Blue Cross Blue Shield. And he stopped the cab at our stop and he turned around and he said, let go, honey. Let it out. Go ahead. Cry. And it was... I mean I just was so touched by that it was heartbreaking but the sad part about that it was
7: too late she couldn't cry I said we've got to get her home to Michigan even if she fights it now by this time she was to the point of almost physically fighting all of us I felt, and we all felt, that she probably was in the middle of a nervous breakdown. But none of us knew how far you could still go, or if this was it, or really what was going on. And in the midst of all this, her grandmother died. It's my fault. I did it. I really did. I never called her. She sort of hysterically said, it's my fault my grandmother died. And she wouldn't get that idea out of her head. But it was the leverage we needed at the time because we then said, well, you do want to go home to your grandmother's funeral.
2: I, I couldn't get it together to, to, to get her ready to get out of New York. And her friend, I mean, her friend was incredible. She, she packed for... I
7: walked in and I said, Annie, let's get your suitcases out and figure out what you need, and we'll pack. I don't have the right clothes to go to a funeral. I'm not going... We got her in the cab, and we put her in the middle, and each of us sat in one side of her. And she even tried to get out of the cab. Out of the cab itself, I can't go.
8: I don't have any clothes for a funeral.
6: Passenger needing assistance? In flight eight hundred three, please check with the flight attendant.
2: We were sitting at the gate. We had gotten permission to to sit with her at the gate, and and she turns to us and she says. Can't we pretend this is just like a all a bad joke?
7: Can't we pretend this is all just a bad joke?
2: <laughs> and it was just like just like the old annie and it, it's like you really- I really wanted to believe her i you know I really wanted to believe her at that
0: point um, I was thinking <clears throat> I was trying to remember something Marjorie had said about uh oh, I know she since she had friends also gathering interviews of some of the people that knew her when she was going through this breakdown she and then hearing what her friends said about her she she was thinking don't they know that I would actually hear this she was sometimes shocked when her friends <laughs> it was like they were saying this behind her back but obviously they, they knew she was producing it and they would hear it but they sort of just went ahead and you didn't really get a sampling of there of of some of the more personal kinds of things happening uh, one of the things of a trying to extract so I can play a number of different things uh, one of the failures of that is that some of the most poetic parts are, are her narratives because obviously some of it's scripted and some of it uh, is just uh, people gathering information as to real people and, and uh, their take on what happened to her um, I don't know does anyone have any comments on this for her? yeah in the long form is there more of a, a sense of vulnerability Yeah yeah it really does uh, also too even this short little bit if you knew Marjorie I as I've listened to this I realized how much of Marjorie's still there this sort of nervous quality this sort of here and there and everywhere kind of, except that she's you know much much more grounded but but she was able to bring out her own personality, even with someone else performing her uh, quite wonderfully. She also writes uh, radio plays too, so she also she works in both areas of fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. What was it called? This is breakdown and back, and so the last half hour deals more with uh, her her, her um, putting her life back together again. Also, too, she said her mother really has yet to forgive her because her mother she. She was able to get her mother on tape, though she really didn't want to do it. And um, so for years afterwards, her mother still did not like what she sounded like. (laughs) One of those things of uh, little dangers of working with people that are close relatives. Uh, The words spoken by the
6: actress, how are they created?
0: Well, the... um, I think she scripted most of that. Yeah, was my—is that what you mean by? Yeah, and and the others, of course, were just questions that people were asking, and then removing the questions. Some of her friends had gathered some of the material from people that knew her. In uh, and, in and that case, that was non-scripted. Also, too, uh, my understanding is that she, once she gathered the material, putting it together, and and then also her writing the, um, particularly the narrative parts. Of, uh, which as I said gets into the more poetic parts but they do tend to be kind of long not long in, in the feeling of, of the pacing of the overall piece they work very well but in this particular context they would appear long is that an answering or not answering and maybe that, I'm trying to pluck up the courage to say that I, that I was trying to hear that
6: without the actor's, actress's lines and, and trying to imagine if she really needed
0: to do that ah, I see what you're saying
6: it's hard to do that because I'm trying to screen it. It struck me that, I mean, you told me, you told us that, that she was scripted and, and, and that performed her role. So I knew that, but I, I, I think my ear would have told me that anybody I think, I'm not
0: think. Sure. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure what to say and what to tell in advance. I felt a little guilty about the first piece not saying anything and, and I didn't want to sort of mislead.
6: The setup was a true story for radio which can cover a wide variety that's that true. So but the listeners would have been left
0: to figure it out for themselves whether the character of was the real person or not. Uh yeah, I I well w- again when I heard the piece I um I assumed it was real and it was a very close friend, um, because it sounded too real to me. And but I didn't know how close she was, so um, but also, too, in, in terms of radio, even setting something up, the way people use radio, particularly in, in the U.S., is they, they just go through the dial. and they, So, it's, so I, I can't say, percentage-wise, it's probably not that large a percentage that they actually hear programs starting. They pick up somewhere in the middle, and then they sort of put it together as it goes along. So I, th- I think it works well in that in that sense of something that your ear tells you has been dramatized, but yet also your ear tells you that these people are awfully real, too. So, question, yeah?
6: I, I can't help but feel like this is a cop-out in a way of, like, there is the value of having these real moments that you can make be so important and so meaningful that come out of just surprise and impromptu, and that in a way, like, through my lens, I'm kind of seeing this as kind of a lazy way out, and maybe in a way that she's kind of escaping certain um, certain responsibilities and professional approaches to this. Um, yeah, and so that that for me, just hearing this kind of it's hard for me to really accept this as a full piece.
0: How how would you? We'll get. To, uh, how how would you how do you think she she could have?
6: I, I think it's fascinating that she had her friends interview her friends who were involved in this, and she got this whole other take that she was really surprised about. And I think there's this element of like, what is it like to do a story about yourself of you having a nervous breakdown? And there's that element that hasn't been approached because it's fictionalized in this way, and that's a really nice element that you know could have been addressed. And I felt that she. She lost out on because she decided to create a fictional version of her, rather than put her in the story. I,
0: I think uh, my understanding was that she, I don't know, I've never gone through a nervous breakdown. I've had close ones, but, um, and I think it was too close to her that she couldn't do that. That it, just the fact of doing this was was. was Quite painful.
6: I wanted to hear that, you know, and I feel like it would it would make, a, it, would make it much more valid for me as a piece with fiction. I, I
0: think if if you if you heard the overall piece, it would uh, it, you, you would I think be more sympathetic, uh, but but very valid what you're saying, yes.
11: Well, I just think it's uh, it's interesting that you said she wrote for for radio theater because obviously that becomes so much more clear than all this, this docudrama stuff. I think docudrama is very tricky. Uh, Because I think when you have the angst of the real people talking and then you have the echoes, in fact, where you have somebody say, and then she said, I don't want to go. And and you hear the actress go, I don't want to go. You know, it kind of, to me, sometimes those docudrama moments trivialize the reality um, because it was... It just didn't work for me, I guess. So I, I think it's a, a fabulous tool, but I think it's a very tricky place to
0: go. No, what you're saying, it's always been a problem with docudramas, and, and so I know there's a lot of uh, documentary producers who, who feel it just doesn't work. I mean, it, it's, it's extremely rare that it, that it actually ever works where you get, get actors working with... I, I, I am going to be playing a couple of pieces that I feel do work. You know uh, what I but, like though, mm-hmm.
11: was, was the sound. The, the, the dramatization of sound, like the bus stop, or you know, mm-hmm. there's some things that I think, without going all the way, you can use to that aren't real, that recorded someplace else and put in here to enhance it. But I just, it's just a very tricky, tricky situation. I think I bet you in the context. I mean, I'm sure it adds a lot um, in terms of making you feel perhaps like you're there in that moment of that wretched, you know can't
0: get out of this madness. Yeah, I, I tend to think that probably most producers feel that it really doesn't work very well. It's very, very difficult to get the two together where you're working with actors. And just as Joe Frank uh, last year was talking about, the way he, he says, I defy anyone that can recreate this by scripting it and just the way he works and gets that extremely realistic uh, feel about it. Um, and even though he's working with fictional situations, but... Uh, uh, but he's he's working with usually actors that uh, that are able to get, delve down into depths and and come up with things that are extremely real.
11: But I guess the question is, does does the docudrama make the truth more real than than without it,
0: right? I th- I, um, I don't know. What's what's anyone else care to comment on that? Uh, whether docudramas make can make things more real, I th- I think they can. But it, but but again, it it's. Uh... I think it's maybe uh,
8: Sharon was saying in the last panel that the whole, you know the whole idea of fiction is bring out in the and that's where you find the relationship. And so I think it's, it's true in this instance as well. I personally have always wondered about the term nervous breakdown and what that really meant, and so. Whether it works or whether it doesn't work, I mean, it kind of doesn't matter. It has given me a sense of how she felt, and I know that it's a genuine one because she was from me only because you said that this is the actual person. So that gives me the sense that she's speaking from her truth. Mm-hmm. So how she decides to fabricate her story works or doesn't work. I mean, it's an old-fashioned style. It's like old old-time radio in a way, but I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean there's certain the, the essential things that she's trying to lay out about well, this is what I'm looking
0: for are still conveying and to me that's that be, you know, the value like that. I, I think too it's it, it i had never heard anything quite like this at the time. Again, you you know, the time factor's the early eighties and so it so it kinda of blew a lot of people's minds and yeah.
6: I was just going to agree uh, with what she just said, that I can't understand why the goal of doc drama is necessarily to be more real, as though there's a quantitative amount of real. Maybe in a way, the goal of doc drama is to be less real a little bit, and then for her, in trying to refract her mental illness, a little less reality was a curative approach. Uh,
0: yeah, I, th- I think she also, I, I suspect it, it was more her, b- because she's an artist, and, and uh, she wanted to bring, that was her way of dealing with it, 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 it as uh, taking a step back and turning it more into a piece of art, and in that way, perhaps being slightly detached from it, because it would seem to me to work on something like this about a year after you re- have re- you recover, um, it, it was very difficult for her, yeah.
12: I think it's probably justified because
13: the material is it's such a taboo subject. And in the 80s, I mean, I, I, I rarely hear now a subject, you know, some, something covered about mental illness. It's still incredibly difficult. I've, I've worked quite often making programs about mental illness. And it's really, really difficult because it's so taboo to get people to speak openly and honestly. So for me, that felt very authentic. And I don't generally like Okiramas, but I thought that probably was... Well, I do believe that was justified, and um, to use that form worked for me.
0: Great. Good comments. (laughs) Um, This this piece was... I'm afraid I kind of butchered it, but I did the best I could. It was just without playing the whole darn thing. The the reason... um, because there was so much narrative, and, and when you hear the whole piece, if you heard the whole piece, though it's uh, half an hour, it, it, it works, the narrative works, but it, it unfortunately would not give you a sense of what, all you'd be hearing is essentially set up in narrative, and, and you wouldn't be hearing what else was happening, so I had to sort of cut down the narrative. And What this deals with is, um, they wanted to present something that would. Uh, well, okay, um, the purpose of this uh, Australian, uh, let's see, her name is uh, Eurydice uh, Arnie, and, and uh, the purpose of the piece uh, was then to get people to listen to a whole story about caring and not bore them to silly uh, about childcare. And uh, I'm interested, a program maker, in finding ways to address serious ideas in an entertaining, relevant way uh, to see whether I can get people to rethink, to engage with social issues without lecturing or pulling at the heartstrings, and uh, so she's saying that the they're not actors. What you're going to be hearing that they're real childcare workers, parents, and uh, academics who uh, who work in this particular field, and it's it's called uh, Dribble Down, and uh, let's see, it's it's. Yeah, dribble, the uh, dribble down effect. And when I first heard it, uh, I th- I thought it was like a piece of satire. I just laughed all the way through because I, I I said I could not conceive of an American having such a light hand when it came to satire. Um, but um, I'll I'll play a little and then we can discuss it. Uh, let's see here.
9: Robbie peace of mind for parents and a lifelong buddy for your
14: child.
2: I like my hobby.
14: It's just over seven years since Australian workers were offered the choice to work child free. To begin with, it was only single people or couples without children who were eligible for the Child Free Workplace Agreement.
12: Child-Free Workplace Agreement is to be extended to include parents after legislative changes today.
14: Those who signed on were guaranteed better pay, flexible work hours and on-site support and entertainment services, extra perks which made the workplace a home away from home. Business productivity boomed, but workers with children have fallen further and further behind in their careers and finances. Now parents themselves are demanding the choice to work child-free. Legal funds manager Sue Morgan explains
12: how it will work for her. Well, it's about priority. If I sign the child-free workplace agreement, then I'm saying that work will be my first priority during certain hours. um, There'll be no contact with family during those hours, and it'll be a breach of contract if, if I do make contact. I also agree to live separately from my family during the week so that I can maintain my energy levels, and I'll agree to take my holidays when it suits the company, not me. In exchange, I can earn a lot more money, and I'm guaranteed a faster
14: promotion. Sue Morgan. She currently supports her husband and four-year-old son working for a major Sydney corporation. Under proposed changes to the Child-Free Workplace Agreement, workers like Sue will have the choice to work child-free and reap the benefits already on offer to most Australians. Workers with kids who decide to sign on will be asked to live away from their families during the week and be expected to have no contact at all with them during work hours. The federal government is backing the changes. It's worried about Australia's rapidly declining birth rate, especially amongst the affluent middle class. Sources close to the government say senior ministers are now convinced the costs of childcare are driving would-be parents out of the market. Childcare charges have skyrocketed since full privatisation nearly a decade ago, and parents earn around 25% less on average than child-free workers. The government believes extending the Child-Free Workplace Agreement and encouraging greater use of robots in childcare centres will help to restore Australians' willingness to breed.
12: Sue Morgan supports
14: the government line.
12: But that doesn't mean that I don't want the choice to have a decent Robbie at home as well. And I think the centre should have them too. I don't mean to replace the staff, but they can provide extra quality and consistency that children deserve. The way I see it is that although we kind of react to this like, oh, isn't it awful that parents can just choose to live apart from their children. After a while, I think we'll see that it might actually benefit families, and not just financially. I mean, look at single parents. At first it was like, oh, family separating, isn't it terrible? I mean, if you were poor, it, it was pretty bad. But for people like us and our friends with a bit of money, what it meant was that they they only had a, you know a child every second weekend, so... They ended up um, you know, having a much better social life and, and they had regular time off, you know, more so than, you know, people with living with partners and their kids around, you know? So they seemed, you know, much more rejuvenated and and they just had, you know, better time, quality time with their kids. Please can you play with me,
9: Mummy? You can't be there all the time. Robbie. Peace of mind for parents and a lifelong buddy for your child. Uh Personalised Robbie play modules to suit your most precious investment.
2: I like playing with my Robbie. Robbie,
9: because you can't be there all the time.
14: As childcare costs have risen, even high-end professional couples have struggled to keep up. And lobbying from the vocal and well-organised child-free movement has put an end to family allowance and other government subsidies to parents. But just as the childhood were beginning to feel more and more alone, technology came to the rescue. Robots never reached their potential as housework tools. Problems with fine motor skill coordination just couldn't be overcome. They could mop a floor, but only if you tidied away first. But when business refocused its robotic investment into surveillance and entertainment, they hit the jackpot. Here at Kids World, Kirk Gambino, the public face of children's robbies, explains some of their finer points.
9: We have a huge range of robbie care systems and what you pay for is what you get. But this is the basic starter model and it relays audio-visual back to the parent and more or less accompanies the child responding to his or her needs.
2: Hi, want to play?
9: Play is the predominant function, and as any parent knows, repetitive play is one of the key development tools used by a child, and it's very time-consuming and wearing for a parent.
6: How about a game?
9: One of the beautiful things about Robbies these days is that you and your child can program it daily, if you like... To mirror the current developmental needs or interests of the child, say the baby is learning to talk. Well, the Robbie will imitate your baby's language practice just as you would. Yeah, give it a try.
14: So this is the age control button just here. 18 months. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh-uh. Oh. Mm. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm Morella Pitt, and you're with Radio Eye on Radio National. Today we're looking at modern family life and the potential impact of the Child-Free Workplace Agreement on families. Sue and Mick Morgan are with us and we're discussing the growing use of robots in caring for
15: children. Um, I think that my point of view on this is a bit old-fashioned. Um... See, I grew up in a big family, like, there were three of us, for God's sakes. Um, and although we were struggling, yeah, we, we had a basic model, Robbie. I remember when I first saw it, I thought it was a new kind of um, vacuum cleaner or something. I remember mum said, this is a new machine and it's going gonna, it's gonna to sit and watch you in the bath. And I was, I was so sort of shocked by that thought that actually the first time I actually got into the bath with my socks on, and then that became like family folklore we told that story every Christmas um, but it actually turned out to be pretty good that first Robbie no, um, not, not perfect like later models it'd, um, it'd go off sometimes and, and just like spin out of c- control just like rotate around at the knee joints and funnily enough that made it seem more human uh, most of the Robbies these days are more or less indestructible and and more human-like, but I tend to think—I uh, um, tend to think this is bad, certainly for children. In any case,
12: you are such a hypocrite, Mick. I mean, this is from a man who selected his son's DNA for musical ability. Come on, Mick, you're prepared to use technology when it suits you. Robbies and domestic help in general have allowed men off the hook. I think. You talk to my women friends and they say without technology and house help, they would have been divorced by now. Why is that? Well, half my friends are married to stay-at-home dads, like me. They say, yeah, that's great for the kids, but are you cleaning the toilet, darling?
0: Hmm. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It it covers a number of different areas of, like, science fiction and everything else. Uh, It was uh, originally presented on a, um, I think it was program series that sometimes would play drama, sometimes docudramas, and so on. And they just went ahead and played it. They didn't set it up. Uh, and they, the assumption was that people would know that uh, this is, you know, not not real, but a number of people felt, uh, did believe it, that the Robbie's existed, and so on and so forth. Then later, uh, shortly after, it was played on a on a more serious uh, daily current affairs m- magazine. And in this case, they set it up as a point of discussion, saying, well, you know, they said what the purpose of it was, and so on and so forth. But again, people probably tuning in, there were a number of people who, again, thought it was real, and they went into a serious discussion about the, the reality of robots and what have you. But I, th- I thought it was rather an intriguing way of uh, presenting, uh, apparently, some social issues that are going on. Any comments? Does anybody have? Nothing. Okay. No, not controversial enough. Hmm? Yeah.
3: Thanks to the Third Coast Festival, actually. I've come to work with the Australians over the last couple of years. I met them here in the two thousand festival, 2001 Festival. And uh, uh, their work appears regularly on The Next Big Thing. And one of the problems that I'm always facing is that um, their work is created for a culture that is very accepting of what we call art on the radio. In America, <clears throat> public radio has come to be dominated by the news. Yeah. And there's a contract between the makers of the news and the news listeners, that what you hear is real. And, uh, you know, that comes down to the smallest levels of production. And if you're hearing ambience from a scene, that's because it happened at the scene that's being reported on. So when you play with forms like that in this culture, there's just no, except for War of the Worlds, are <laughs> so few moments in our history now where we accept that as a day-in and day-out kind of thing. I mean, even the word docudrama, when it gets used usually is a one-way equation. It's using drama to describe something that was supposed to have happened. It's rare that it goes the other way, where documentary material is used in an artistic purpose. And yet the features movement, which really took hold in Australia, is all about that. So what's really interesting, though, is I've gotten to talk to the Australians. turns out that what they're doing is also equally marginalized in their country. More and more, the news people have taken over Australian Mm -hmm. broadcasting to the point where the show that... Is the generator for much of this work? The listening room has been cancelled, so it was a victory for, you know, the people who are representing fact mm. through radio journalism, even in Australia. Mm. So that's sort of the central problem when you're trying to present this material, even there, which is a really sad thing.
0: You think we're losing our sense of humor to- totally? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it's.
3: It's harder and harder to hear radio in America anyway That is three-dimensional And that challenges you And that asks you to challenge it And say, well, what am I listening to? And how do I really feel about this? There's a, there's a kind of expectation that you're being told the truth And it's good for you And uh, thank God I get all my news from NPR Which is you know what I hear all the time from people
0: And it scares the hell out of me mm. That's great Appreciate that uh, This next piece um, by Sarah Conklin and Sarah woods uh, um, BBC producers called hinterlands and and uh, I, I think I think you 'll find it interesting um, you could call it a docudrama actors and non actors working together and i 've never heard anything quite like like this it, it was um, they had done interviews with uh, the subject to. Unfortunately, again, here is death. But um, they had done interviews with three women, one who lost a, a son, another lost her mother, and another her husband. And so you'll hear it cutting back and forth between um, the, the real interviews with the acted and scripted uh, performers that are re- recreations of The son. The uh, recreations of the real son and and mother and uh, <clears throat> and husband meeting, sort of in the hinterlands. that is meeting on a beach after death. They're meeting, and then there eventually they they get in a boat and they go away. And again, it's a half hour. And uh, there's a certain uh, wonderful kind of suspension about it, uh, and also. I think it's one of the, that I've heard anyway, one of the smoothest transitions back and forth be, between obvious fiction or recreation and reality. And, of course, when they originally did the interviews, uh, they didn't quite know how, how they were going to work with it. So then they came up with the idea of uh, dramatizing parts of it. And then, of course, they went back to the three women and asked them whether it was got their permission that it was okay to do it
1: what do you think brown
12: dress or navy suit
13: beautiful cloth
16: i used to love to watch her dress because it was a real performance Uh, step into it'd be a bra then she'd wear like a corset thing It it seemed like endless hooks and eyes, and I'd sit there mesmerised as she did all these hooks and eyes all the way down. Petticoat under. Then she'd have her petticoat, and then she'd have her... You know, so it was a whole load of stuff that got put on the top. Yes, that's it. (laughs) Lovely suit. And she would make lovely suits and things for herself, but they'd be for best. Mm. And that was one of the difficulties. After she died... You know, Mum was a great thing about special occasions. She didn't wear it all the time. It was almost like she was saving for tomorrow. But tomorrow never comes. If I just... Where are we? And I can remember giving her a bottle of perfume. Moondrops. Moondrops. You know, even though it was a tiny, tiny bottle, oh, it went for years, cos she'd only get out on special occasions, you know. Nice. Two dabs, one behind each ear. Jewelry. Now,
13: somewhere here, I've got my...
16: Most of her jewels were sort of inexpensive, polished stones. I can remember things like, almost like a quartz stone. crudely. if you picked up a pebble on the beach and cut it and polished it, that would be the sort of thing. Hello? Hello? Are you there?
3: It's me. Can you hear me? The phone
9: won't work.
17: He packed his bags and said, I'm off. And I vaguely knew he was going to somewhere in Devon, but I wasn't quite sure where, with his art students on a week's sketching. And I remember standing on the doorstep, waving him off and just laughing at myself and thinking I was like his mother, you know, standing there at the doorstep waving goodbye until he'd gone into the distance. You know, that kind of just being there and wanting to see them go around the corner. That night he called, and he called at about half past ten from Brixham, which is actually fact where he was, and uh, it was the bay where I'd grown up as a child. I grew up into a bay, and uh, so I suddenly realised where he was, which was great. And I think The Good Sex Guide was on with Margie Clark and uh, it was on long-term relationships. So I remember saying to him, I'm not going to be long, you know. And he sounded very tired, actually. I said, I'm not going to be long, I must whiz off and and look at this so I can be wonderful when you get home, (laughs) you as you do. And uh, he said, loads of love, I'll speak to you and the kids in the morning. And um, that was the last I spoke to him. They'd had fish and chips on the docks in Brixham that night and he talked about how his parents had lived in this little Scottish fishing village and they watched the boats bob out on a Sunday night, and then my parents and how he'd like to go and see them because they lived on the other side of the bay, and he he said Bev and the kids would be great if they were here. They'd love those fish and chips. I should have wished they'd come with us.
15: Would you like some help with that? No. Thank you.
1: I can manage.
15: I think the support strut's back to front.
1: Oh,
12: I've put this thing up thousands of times I, I can do it myself It's just a It's a matter of
16: oh. She had a fit one night That's how it started She was sort of in coma And I can remember just sitting alongside her With my hands on the rails of the crib well, uh, Talking to her
6: Were your shoes?
15: I don't know
17: So there was a knock at the door, four o'clock in the morning and uh, the police arrived to tell us Steve had died and uh, he died of a massive asthma attack for us it was a journey down to Torbay which is where, you know, I'd married Stephen in Torbay, I'd grown up in Torbay, I'd dreamt about my life ahead, you know, like you do your plans and everything and suddenly I was going back to see my husband lying there on a slab dead. It was just that thing of, of seeing him so cold, you know, I mean it's the coldness of somebody that's given you so much love and affection you've shared so much with it's been so warm and then suddenly you go there and you hold his hand or you touch his head and you think it was so cold it was freezing i remember ruffling my hands through his hair and thinking you can't leave it you just can't go you just can't leave us like this
15: i must have had them i had them in the chip shop
3: why haven't i got them now
4: Perhaps you took them off. I don't think.
3: I don't remember. I don't remember taking my shoes off anyway.
0: Who's that?
15: Where?
13: That young man. Down by the sea.
16: He's walking towards us. Here he comes. Hello! Is he looking? No. Perhaps he's not seeing us. He's walking past.
8: Mm -hmm.
13: He hadn't come down for breakfast. I walked upstairs and his bedroom door was ajar. And he was sitting actually on the floor, smoking. And uh, I said, come on downstairs. No, no, I'll I'll come down later, And um, he came downstairs and said that he'd go out for a walk. And it was a very beautiful March day, quite unseasonably warm. And, in fact, he walked to the Avon Gorge. And uh, I never came back.
5: I'll go after him. Uh,
1: No, leave him.
15: Where's my wallet? My wallet's gone.
13: What have you got there?
15: A magic trick. What have you got those for? They won't get me very far.
12: Depends where you're going.
15: I don't remember putting them in my pocket. And letters and poems.
2: Yuck.
13: That young man, he's coming over. I went up to his room about 7 o'clock in the evening because although it was a beautiful day, it was a March day and it was quite cold by this time and he hadn't taken a jacket with him. And I looked around his room and he'd laid out on the bed quite neatly his wallet and his keys... And that really frightened me, because I thought, wherever he is, he hasn't taken his money. He's not taken the house keys. Good evening. Take a seat. We wondered if you were going to join us.
6: I've got fish and chips if you're hungry. He doesn't say
13: much. Perhaps he just wants to sit and look at the view... I'm quite happy here, watching the sea.
15: I don't know. I don't want to stay here all night.
17: Oh, going to bed at night was agony. It was just awful. Because that thing of not having him there... And I remember the smell of his pyjamas, because he'd left his pyjamas because he got off with some clean ones, you know, and, uh, and I used to his pyjamas and I just used to nestle into them. And that smell to me was so precious, just that sort of, it's like the smell on the back of his neck. And uh, it was just that smell of him. And that was heartbreaking once that wore off. I tried to put them somewhere where I'd never lose the smell, and of course the smell of the wooden cabinet it was in became stronger than his smell, so that was an agony.
15: What are you doing? In the pebbles to make a sandcastle.
13: I do remember that I screamed. The screams were being pulled out of my body, that I wasn't emitting screams, but somehow they were out there and I could hear them ringing out and it seemed to me they were ringing out throughout the whole neighbourhood, totally involuntary. And it's... You don't know who you are anymore.
0: What do you think?
8: Yeah. Um, I thought this piece was really successful, and what I liked about it was that um, it was clear that there were like two narrative lines going on, but the
11: way that they would touch or intersect each other was very subtle. Like, um, like sometimes fiction anticipates the fact of like the buttons and things, something, something,
8: uh, or the talking about her dress. Sometimes the fact anticipates the fiction, so it doesn't feel like there's like some sort of causal relationship. And also, the way that they share the same ambient space at times—like you'll hear the beach, but don't you know they'll be talking. And also, the, the contrast between the tones of so the women speaking really seriously and you know, about these events, and then the other people like narrating or whatever, living out some sort of experience. It's a lot more light and kind of you know, day to day. Yeah. Anyway,
0: I thought it was really good. More comments? Anybody else? Oh, come on. <laughs> the transitions were fabulous. Yeah. Very elegant, very provocative, and, and making,
11: you, making you think. Yeah.
0: Yeah, right. I, I, thought, I thought it really worked. as, a, as a, to, uh, also, uh, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I
6: agree. One thing is just how much stronger the real stuff was. How much more compelling and
0: how much more attached that was. And just that, that blend of compelling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, they allowed the, because of the subtleness of, of the hinterlands, that is the dramatized part, it, it, uh, they, they allowed the, the real in, in interviews to, to uh, carry it, to step forth, and that that particular energy. And the other was, was they, they kept it low, and uh, as, as one might consider after. You know, the possibility of after death.
11: Mm-hmm. It worked very beautifully, uh, but I
6: was trying to think. After a while, I realized the camps on the beach were real in my idea and were death calling me, or in some way or other, back there. And that was enough distinction to do exactly what you said. And I, was, I knew exactly what was going on, and I accepted it. And one element helped another yeah. in this case.
0: Very if you hear the whole whole piece it's very trance like you could c- certainly experience it from that what was it like almost ten minutes there um, also what I thought too, listening to it that i think I thought they did a marvelous job of putting the women at ease to actually um, for them to be comfortable and and to talk so eloquently uh, about things and uh, and some of it's very, extremely touching. Uh, and for them to be able to sort of keep their presence and their emotions uh, and yet discuss this uh, in such detail. Yeah. But, but to me, that, that yeah, but to me, that said something about the person, too. That, yeah, it was a, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is it, it allowed them to, to speak. And uh, with it without you know such tight control, perhaps, and uh, yeah, it takes quite, takes quite some skill, I think to uh, create that sense of safety and allow yeah
6: <coughs> Who wrote the script for the actors
0: I'm sorry, what was that?
8: Because weren't the people that were playing the dead people um, did they really were they really dead in real life
0: not. Oh, uh, not the people. No, no. They, they, they were actors. Is, yeah, is that what no, you meant? What I was saying, who played the actors? Um, the that... I. It, they worked with someone who works in the drama department BBC and uh, whoever directed the actors and and um, cast and so on. I. That does bring up an interesting question, like how closely were these to the real people? Yeah. That is, their they're... and I, I suspect that they wrote the parts based upon what these interviews and and probably other parts of the interviews that were, were never were part of the program but was it one person
6: who wrote the or was I, um,
0: I think so but I honestly I honestly don't know yeah, yeah I can see I should have asked a lot more questions than I did <laughs> I, I didn't yeah
8: I think my guess is that um, they, they probably let the actors in some parts, it was almost like a, like a Ken Nordine thing going on where it was like the actor was... Uh, I, I almost thought process-wise, they might have just been listening to the descriptions hmm. and sort of reenact... Like, you know, they'd be talking about buttoning up a dress and she, the actress would be saying, oh, here's my button. It was almost like in real time to the interviews. And I thought, I mean, they might have just let them listen at points. I mean, yeah. there were other more sort of dramatic parts that didn't have to do so much with descriptions. But I think some of it it felt to me like it was almost being improvised on on the
0: yeah. spot. Yeah I, th- I think that was uh, yeah. Was that the end
11: of the piece? Were we actually at
0: the end there? Uh no, no. It it does no there is there is more uh where this, the the boy or the young man does speak because you didn't hear him speak yet. He does say a few things, and then they see a, a boat coming, or they find a boat. I, I can't remember actually. They may have find a boat, and they they uh, they get in the boat and they start to row, and uh, and it's and they're sort of rowing into the mist, and that's where it ends. You know. What's the funny part of that? I guess a well, feeling that it was
11: coming toward the end. I liked the characters as they emerged and transitioned between the people, but then it was, it was a little odd that they were all sort of, and it was sort of, you know, quaint that they were meeting up on the beach, all three of these sort of separate entities coming, and it was sort of sort of, like this happy ending to this whole death thing, right? After, you picture them in this sort of afterlife on the beach together, which I thought was. When well, you talk about injecting your own um, desires and perspectives into a, into the whole body of it, I thought that as opposed to just letting them bring to life the memories of the women, there then became this you know, dramatic meeting of these people in this sort of place after death, so to speak. I think
0: that was a little odd. Okay. Let me play a two-minute thing, then. Okay. And uh, this is... Uh, I'll, I'll say a couple of things afterwards, but it's uh, Jack Ruby's polygraph. And uh, who, as you know, shot uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, who supposedly shot JFK, And, and it's been it's been enhanced a little.
18: Have you ever knowingly attended any meetings of the Communist Party or any other group that advocates violent overthrow of the government? No. Is any member of your immediate family or any close friend a member of the Communist Party? No. Is any member of your immediate family or any close friend, member of any group that advocates the violent overthrow of the government? No. Did any close friend or any member of your immediate family ever attend a meeting of the Communist Party? No. No. Did any close friend or any member of your immediate family ever attend a meeting of any group that advocates the violent overthrow of the government? No. Did any foreign influence cause you to shoot Oswald? No. Did you shoot Oswald because of any influence of the underworld? No. Did you shoot Oswald because of a labor union influence? No. Did you shoot Oswald in order to save Mrs. Kennedy the ordeal of a trial?
0: That's actually a section from a play. The um, Gregory Whitehead, by the way. Um, what, what I found interesting about it is that it's um, everything's totally recreated. That is, the actors. I mean, they're actors that are performing it, and so on. Though to me, they sound very real. And, and I think what what also makes them sound so real is that it turns out the the text that is is taken directly from the Warren Report on the assassination of. Uh, F. Kennedy and with the polygraph tests that they gave to Jack Ruby and I, I just thought even though it's part of a longer play um, I thought it had a, I, I don't know what your take of it is but I thought it had a very kind of eerily re, eerie real quality about it that uh, made me wonder I so that's why I got a hold of Gregory and said damn this sounds real you know? and he said well the, it is actually verbatim from uh, the Warren report a little bit of the polygraph tale. especially uh, all these questions about communism, communism, communism anyway I, I guess that's it unless anyone else let you have any more comments